Welcome, everyone, to our first of two year-end spectaculars here on The George Sanders Show. I can't believe 2014 is almost done. Um, if, anybody, if you've been listening since last year at this time, you, you may know the structure of what we're going to be doing over the next two episodes. Um, this episode is going to be looking back to the movies that we discovered for the first time in 2014 um, that are not 2014 films. They're, they're movies, you know, from way back when. As far back as 2002 mm. <laughs> um, <laughs> that we discovered for the first time and uh, we wanted to share with each other. So we've got a film that I saw, um, Coffee, um, from 1973 starring Pam Greer um, that I forced upon Sean. And Sean did the same with uh, Golden Chicken, as I said, from 2002. Um, and so we're gonna we're gonna tackle those films. We're gonna also count down our top five uh, discoveries of the year, uh, and listen to music that we like that came out in 2014. Um, so at the top of the show, you heard uh, it was it, the band is called Hue Time. Um, it's a side project, kind of a one-off thing, uh, with the two drummers from the Melvins uh, and a guy that plays in Blackheart Procession. Um, and it's an all percussion record, um, which you know me, Sean. I love me some drums. So <laughs> it's right up my nine pan alley, which is the name of that song. Uh, and Sean, you've got some interesting cuts lined up uh, for us this week, don't you? Oh, some, yeah. Some, some, some deep some, cuts. Some very obscure artists that uh, <laughs> nobody, not even the, the drummers from the Melvins, have heard of. That's right. That's right. It's going to be pretty interesting. Yeah. Uh, I'm looking forward to it. Uh, well, speaking of that, um, we're instead of listening to clips from the films this week, we're going to be playing some of, of this music because we've just we're just so in love with these tunes, right? So uh, let's hear your first pick, Sean, as we dive into our discussion of coffee. Yeah, uh, when we were putting this episode together, I kind of went and, and looked at the music from 2014 that I had actually listened to, and there were actually only two albums, so I had to go and find a, a third. <laughs> in order to get enough music for for the show otherwise it would just be all uh all taylor swift uh but she's the, coming she's coming down she's, the pipe she's coming you 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 will wait and you will hear taylor swift on the george sanders show <laughs> uh but the other album the non-taylor swift album that i that i listened to this year was uh the, uh, the latest from Lana Del Rey, and this is from that album, and it is called Shades of Cool. Which pretty much describes us. Yeah. <laughs> 50 Shades of Cool right here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it really, it really doesn't sound like coffee at all. <laughs> yeah, well, whatever. My baby lives shades of cool, cool Coffee is one of the biggest names uh, in terms of black exploitation films. Um, it's from director Jack Hill um, and starring Pam Greer, who's 
as they say on the poster, the godmother of them all. Um, and co- co- the, Coffee is the name of her character. She's a nurse who uh, goes on kind of a one-woman, you know, vengeance spree um, because her sister got hooked on dope, and uh, she's taking it out on everybody in the that could possibly have been involved with with this situation um and it starts with the low-level drug dealers and then works up to the mob and you know the crooked cops that are in on the take and all that stuff and basically the movie's about 90 minutes of of pam greer kicking total ass saying motherfucker left and right uh getting naked a lot and uh basically being being like the coolest person <laughs> i've ever seen in my life um Jack Hill the next year went on and made um, what kind of, was originally a sequel, um, Foxy Brown, which they they decided not to do that. Although it's almost a remake in a way. But um, I've seen both this year. I kind of this is the first year I've kind of dipped my toes into black exploitation stuff. Um, and Coffee, I think, was the first one I saw, and it still might be the best one that I've seen. Um, you, Sean, had never seen this one. Had you seen any other black exploitation films before this? Uh, not really. Uh, we watched when I was uh, when I was a freshman in college. We watched Shaft, uh, Shaft's Big Score, and Shaft in Africa. Nice. Uh, but those were kind of late night under the influence viewings. <laughs> sure. Uh, and and yeah. Uh, other than that, I I haven't seen any of of the big names the the two Pam Greer movies, uh, uh, Superfly, uh, the other one. I'd like to give a shout out to Dolomite. Were you thinking Dolomite, Dolomite. Um, I'd like to give a shout out to uh, Black Belt Jones, which mm-hmm. is one that I saw recently on Warner Archive, um, which stars Jim Kelly uh, from Enter the Dragon, and is so much goddamn fun. Like, really, anybody that that wants to just have fun with a movie, that it ends in a climactic kung fu battle in a car wash. So. You know, it's it's pretty much the best thing ever. Uh, Sweet Sweetback's badass song was the, ah, yes. the, one, the other one I was thinking of. Uh, yeah, I haven't seen any of those, so I, I it's not uh, a genre I'm familiar with at all. So, um, knowing that I responded to Coffee, uh, having seen it earlier in the year, um, how do you feel about it now? Do you want to try more black exploitation? Did you enjoy this? What, what what's your what are your thoughts on Coffee? Uh, I liked it. <laughs> Hard hitting news. Yeah, uh, the the kind of American exploitation cinema of the seventies is 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 an area I, I really do need to explore more. Like not just the the black exploitation films, but but other kind of action exploitation y type film, films. Like I've seen a couple of Russ Meyer films. I've seen uh, we watched uh, Rock and Roll High School, right? Which is kind of in that vein. I've seen uh, Jonathan Demme's Caged Heat the woman in prison film, which is really awesome. Uh, but other than that, I, I just, I really don't know anything about them, but yeah, I have watched a lot of Hong Kong movies from the same period and they do all have a lot in common, a certain kind of low genre, very violent, you know, exploitation approach to what are, you know, actually serious subjects. There's, and, yeah, the heart, the beating heart of this movie. I mean, it is, you know, uh, 
angry. <laughs> I mean, there's a, it's there's it's a, a it, it's really angry, and and there's a lot going on, and and that's you know the the interesting thing about about exploitation cinema and like really good exploitation cinema is well, it's not the interesting thing. There's lots of interesting things about it, but one of them is that they they tackle you know social problems from a uh, from a different direction than a social problem film. Right. Like you you could you could easily make a really really boring film about you know kids getting hooked on heroin right and it would probably win oscars and it wouldn't be nearly as good as coffee right which opens with a scene of of pam greer blowing off a guy's head with a shotgun (laughs) yeah and Um, and and you know it's and it's not just about heroin it's about it's about racism it's about institutional racism and and the uh the total failure of the war on drugs it's uh, it's about rampant misogyny Oh yeah, and it may uh, and and it uh, it may you know partake in that as much as it indicts it, and it's also about uh, it's also kind of about Vietnam. <laughs> yeah, I could see that. Like um, uh, specifically at one point when when one of the characters links the uh, the the drug trade in Los Angeles to the war in Vietnam as as. Uh, one of the the proximate causes of the war being the U.S. government wanting to secure the place where heroin comes from. Right. I actually really like that. That scene is really um, one of my favorite little moments in the movie is when uh, it's her friend calling her out on her kind of her her path. He's like, what are you doing? Like, uh, how, are you going to get rid of everybody in this chain? Like, are you going to go, like you said, are you going to go across the world and and, you know, um, kill the people that are, you know, harvesting these, you know, narcotics and stuff. Um, and yeah, yeah it's, it's, it, it really kind of wrestles with certain things. But, uh, but also, and, and more, more interestingly, um, to me at least, uh, although I, I think that is an interesting angle more so is the way that, uh, that the, uh, director Jack Hill, uh, kind of portrays, coffee's reaction to that initial act of violence that opens the film like for the next 20 minutes or so of this 90 minute movie she's not kicking any ass at all she's traumatized by the ass that she has kicked in uh, in a very you know interesting way like we get like quick edits of her kind of reliving this moment where she's blown this guy's head off and you and you see how it's like physically affecting her and affecting her mental state yeah, it's done uh, in a way that's much better handled than in uh, Steven Spielberg's Munich, which um, there's a moment that, that that reminds me of that in this, uh, okay, where sure. she's making love to someone, and uh, you know, there's a quick flashback cut to to the guy's head being blown off or whatever, yeah. which works a lot better than Eric Bana thrusting um, and picturing all of the violence that he's brought upon people. Um, and you're absolutely right. Um, but she's also traumatized through the whole movie, and um, I think we'll talk about it a little bit later on. But I, I think the strength of this movie, well, obviously the strength of this movie for me lies with Pam Greer's performance. Like I think she's really fucking amazing in this. Um, and the final scene with her, where she's breaking down, kind of in front of her boyfriend, who's a total jerk, and I think we need to di- dive into that in a minute too. Yeah. Uh, but her performance in that scene where she's like, I'm so tired, like, I don't know what's going on anymore. She just wants it to be over um, is a wonderful portrayal of that kind of like um, 
trauma that you, you know she's gone through. Yeah, and that and that that scene comes comes so close to not working. And I know it, it it's really got, does, and it's got like this this twist at the end that that makes you think, really. <laughs> Yeah, is is that why she's going to do that thing? I, you know, I don't know if we want to spoil the forty year old movie, but <laughs> I think we I think we can, and I think it I think it might be beneficial to do that. Yeah, because uh, 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 she's she's confronting like the final villain, who is her boyfriend and who is a a politician who has like betrayed her to the mob, and he's like on the take. He's been giving all of these speeches about like black empowerment, and it turns out that he's just as crooked as all of the white people. And so she finally goes to him. He's the last man standing. He's the last man she has left to kill. And he starts, like, sweet-talking her. And she starts to fall for it until she sees that he's been sleeping with this white girl. And then she shoots him. In the testicles. Yeah. yeah, So it's like all of the other stuff, she, you know, it the movie almost makes you want to think that she would be willing to forgive all of that other stuff that he did. But... She's a woman, and if he cheated on her, then she'll shoot him. And see, that's that's definitely a reading you can get into it and and stuff. And I, especially watching it the second time, uh, it didn't it didn't annoy me as much, or it didn't kind of stick with me as much because I feel like she she's trying like before she even sees the the other woman she you know she it's because she's so exhausted and like she says she's it feels like i'm in a dream or whatever it feels mm-hmm. like you know um and so that's why he can kind of manipulate her at this point cuz she's just so fucking tired of this whole thing and yeah the appearance of the white woman you know naked at the at the stairwell or whatever um drives her to kill him but i think that it it, more so than jealousy, it kind of just snaps her out of. Yeah, exactly. Kind of it's like a, season. it's like a callback to reality. It's like right. she'd been like in this hypnotic state, and then seeing this girl just kind of snaps her back. Right. That's that's how I kind of read it this time. Um, uh, but that it's obvious. I mean, yeah, it's very. It's it's a it's a like you said the scene. It's a difficult scene, and which is what makes this movie so like you said compared to like some sort of like. Um, I don't know, middle brow, like prestige kind of picture about these kind of problems, the social problem films. Um, these kind of um, contradictions within coffee are what make it so interesting um, and, and make it, you know, it elevates the material when, you know, it, it's, it's kind of having its cake and eating its too with, with the whole, obviously, the rampant nudity and misogyny, as you said, like, I mean, so many boobs, so many boobs in this movie. Um, I, I love the, there's a, a fight scene in the middle of the film where, where Pam Greer is fighting like all of these other prostitutes. Uh, and, and the fights, you know, like, you know, a normal fight scene will end when like the hero like connects on a punch and knocks like the other person out and like they stagger backwards, you know, and they're out of the fight. Uh, this fight scene ends when, when somebody gets their top ripped off. <laughs> so, yeah, it, so, so yeah. Every, every fight, there's like a series of women fighting <laughs> Pam Greer. And when she, you know, gets their, their, her, her, their dress open, then, you know, she moves on to the next right. person. <laughs> I love that fight scene. I love everything about that fight scene. I love um, Pam throughout the movie conceals stuff in her hair, um, which is super awesome and cool. Um, it should be said that she sports a, a giant afro. Yes, she uh, throughout. Yeah, um, later on she she hides you know um, a little piece of metal that she's filed down, um, but 
she knows that she, when she walks back into this room, she's been, you know, she's she's infiltrating this prostitution ring. Um, and she, um, you know, she the, knows other, that there's the other trouble women ahead. don't. Yeah, the, she knows there's trouble ahead. So she goes to the bathroom and sticks razor blades in her, in her afro because she knows someone's about to grab her hair. And when that woman grabs her hair and then reaches her hands out and is just covered in blood, I w- that's I think the first time I saw this when I was like, okay, coffee is the jam. I'm I'm feeling this movie. Um, yeah, and that that's totally something you you would see in a, a '70s Hong Kong film too. Yeah, uh, that preparation, you know, <laughs> the yeah. way like what's the payoff here, you know, and then and then you get it, and it's even better than you could possibly imagine. Um, what what did you think about the non Pam Greer actors? Uh, they're all. Not Pam Greer. <laughs> yeah. uh, there, there was there was one guy who plays like the uh, the the Italian uh, mobster, and it was driving me nuts because he looks so familiar to me. Uh, and uh, I looked it up, and he's the guy who plays the psychiatrist on Mash. Oh, I'm not as familiar with Mash. So. The the TV series. It's a is a recurring character. Alan one, Arbus. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. He, well, he's so funny because <laughs> he's this big crime lord, you know, um, that's kind of moving into the you know inner city territory or whatever. And we hear about him before we see him, and then then he's revealed with his like thugs, and he's this short, greasy, you know. I mean, he's so slimy. He's he's perfectly cast. Oh you know? yeah, he's. I I think he's. I think he's terrific. He's, <laughs> he's a great villain. The uh, the politician. The guy that that guy what how do you unpack that character yeah it's an interesting I mean, yeah it's a really weird he he's the one that um watching this movie both times where he's he's so i i hate him so much <laughs> And 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 it and it and it hurts me that uh, you know to see Pam Greer like we said in the final scene um, kind of start to fall under his spell again because it's so obvious from the very beginning that he's a total jerk um, and you want Coffee to be with you know you know you want her to be the strong willed you know self sufficient woman that she is um, and see through this guy's baloney you know. Yeah, that 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 speech he gives though, where he's where he's like walking through the park and talking to people about that scene is fantastic about like the the nature of the drug trade and the impact on the community and and you know how important it is you know this this like big like black empowerment nineteen seventy three speech and it's it's a terrific speech and and the scene ends. You think it's like a spontaneous thing? It's like he's just talking yep. and you know, yep. telling it like it is, and the, when. Uh, when his speech ends, you have like this white director come in and say, "Hey, that was great. We're going to cut together, you know, the end of the first take with the beginning of this one." And you right. realize it's all staged. It's all, all written. It's yeah. he doesn't he doesn't believe a word of it. And that's your your first real hint that he's going to be the villain. And it's 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 heartbreaking. That no, yeah, that that's a fascinating. I love that scene. I absolutely yeah. love that scene. I just. For me, I you know when she goes to meet him the first time at the strip club, and you know he's sitting there ogling the the woman that he ends up. Oh with sure, you like you know he's he's at yeah, least like, misogynist. Right. But yeah, I, I just, but to we, see but to see him like you know betray every ideology. Oh sure, 
is yeah. is is really kind of tragic, uh, and and the kind of uh, the the patriarchal point of view is something that the film doesn't really escape from, and it I don't know that it can because it is so obsessed with boobs. Yeah, uh, like the the only the only thing that's not sexist about it is Pam Grier's performance. I I I agree with that. And it's a credit to that performance that it uh, it really you know wrestles that away from the movie for you know for what it's worth it really does you know um, kind of stand head and shoulders above it, all of that rampant misogyny and all the you know uh, horrible you know male gaze stuff that's going on you know um, yeah it's yeah and it, it's so different from from another you know, 70s exploitation genre, the, the slasher film, which has the, the female hero, hero, but it's uh, the, the hero who, who, who is like persecuted throughout the film by, by a male killer and then only succeeds at the end. Right. And in this instance, she's the active one. She's the one going out and, and, and causing all the trouble and, and, you know, wreaking righteous vengeance and, and it, it just kind of wrecks her. So, yeah, I don't know. I love, I love, stuff. I love the the final shot, which, which is almost like a like a, a nod to the four hundred blows, right? She's <laughs> or, walking or on the, the beach. Or, yeah, or the or the birds. Even it's like uh, you know she's she's dispensed with all the violence and she just walks out into this freeze frame. Yeah, it's great. It yeah. is really great. Um, two two things um, in terms of the construction of the movie that I really 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 like. Um, I didn't. I don't think I noticed it the first time, but. Um, the the way the economy in the editing of this movie where there's multiple times where a character will say something at the end of a scene like let's go have sex and then like before they even finish saying like the word sex it'll cut to them having sex like in a different part or you know like it'll it'll just refer to the next thing and just go right to it like there's no dilly-dallying or whatever there's like a really hard edit to go into the next thing um which i think is great um and also i love and I wish that this could happen in my in my personal life. I love characters having theme songs that pop up in the middle of the movie, hmm. um, <laughs> because there's there's obviously there's a song for coffee, uh, but there's also this great, and when I say great, I mean absolutely terrible song for King George, who is the um, the pimp. The, yeah, that, we haven't talked about King George at all. <laughs> I love King George. I. But he has this song where it's like, George, George, or I can't even do it. <laughs> but it just like goes on for like two minutes or whatever. And cinema is really missing out um, nowadays where you don't get that. Um, where a, a character, a larger than life character will appear on screen. And this like funk song will come on where they're like chanting his name. Um, but King George deserves it because, man, that what guy's a, crazy. What a guy. What a guy. Um, I actually... One, another scene of mine that I like is the King George um, scene with his girlfriend. Yeah. Uh, where he's, she's, uh, she just got beat up by Pam Greer and he's all angry and annoyed and stuff, but he's going out to do business, conduct business or whatever. But it's this weird kind of sweet slice of life picture of these two characters that, you know, one's a pimp and one is a prostitute, but they're just at home doing their thing. And I think it's really kind of adorable, except for the fact that she's all beat up and he's, you know, 
going to sell her body later, but <laughs> yeah. Other than that, it's, other than it's, that, it's, it's kind of sweet. sweet. Yeah. And, and the, the earlier scene with them where she's, she's come home unexpectedly. She had like been on a job in some other place. Yeah. She went to Europe and Europe she was or something. Just, yeah. Uh, and, uh, and as she's there is when he's brought Pam Greer back to, back to his house. Cause she's undercover as a like wannabe prostitute and Jamaican prostitute. Right. Named, and, uh, oh, what's her name in it? Um, oh, fudge. It's really funny because all the characters make fun of the name. It's like Quasar or something, but it's not Quasar. Anyway, sorry. I, I don't, I don't even, I don't even remember what, what the name was. Uh, <laughs> Uh, anyway, King George gonna, is going to like try her out, like take her for a test drive, and the uh, his girlfriend is all is all jealous. It's, it's like it's adorable. Yeah, he's like it's just business, baby. <laughs> <laughs> and then he gets dragged by a car. Yeah. So, anyway, um, but yeah, it, uh, it's it's a heck of a movie. Um, you know. So, as I said at the beginning, Pam Greer uh, and Jack Hill teamed up again the next year to make um, Fox Brown, Brown, which uh, is an interesting movie. It's it's not nearly as strong as Coffee is uh, across the board. Like, it actually takes a while to get up to speed, but its final third is absolutely ridiculous. I mean, it's like, it... it, it it pays it off at the end, um, it, but it's not as consistently great as, as um, coffee is. But uh, it does end um, with Pam Greer like driving like a propeller plane um, into a shack and like killing a bunch of like <laughs> horrible people again. It's pretty great. So yeah, that sounds good. It's uh, the 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 whole genre, like I said, is obviously something I need to explore more of. Yeah. Yeah. My next one I think I'm going to watch is Three the Hard Way, which uh, man, if you want to depressing plot synopsis read the one on three the hard way um basically the the white power structure is putting something into the water supply to kill off all the black people um (laughs) sounds about right yeah but there are three that are going to come at them hard and uh you know vengeance will you know win the day i guess but anyway so that's our discussion um of coffee uh it's it's a fun movie if you haven't seen it check it out and we really couldn't spoil it because there's so much going on, so many boobs, you just wouldn't even believe it. So <laughs> uh, we're going to listen to some more music now. Um, I started the show with a Melvin's side project, and I'm actually going to play uh, King Buzzo, the guitarist, songwriter, singer for the Melvins, uh, released a solo album this year, an acoustic solo album um, called This Machine Kills Artists. Uh, and this is a song off of that called Vaulting Over a Microphone. Wait, there, there's a Buzz and a King Buzzo? Well, he, that's, well, his name is Buzz Osborne, but he calls himself King Buzzo. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. There's not, there aren't two Buzzes. Oh, okay. Uh, that, 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 would be, that would be silly. <laughs> <laughs>
right, so now is the part of the show when we normally talk about like news and the person of the week and the essential, but we're not going to do that this week. Where you are, like Mike said, we're going to talk about our favorite films that were new to us that didn't come out recently that we saw for the first time in 2014. <laughs> Put that on a t-shirt. Yeah, and and we did that last year. I've done it on, on my blog for for a very long time, and... Uh, lots of other people do that. It's like a thing now that everyone does. It's one of the lists that uh, that you have to make at the end of the year. So this is nothing original, but we're going to do it anyway. So we're gonna we're gonna count down from from five to one, uh, and I am totally gonna cheat. I don't know if oh, you just picked five cheating. movies, but I am a cheating bastard. So. Oh. You cheated last year too. Yeah, you should have seen it coming. <laughs> you really should have. Oh man! All right. So, what's your number five? Uh, my number five. You know, this year was, um, you know, the world was gripped with uh, World Cup fever. Mm. You know, all that craziness was going on, and I managed to avoid uh, all of it, mm. uh, except uh, right in the smack dab in the middle of it, I decided to finally get around to watching uh, Shaolin soccer, mm. and uh, you know, it it's it's. Amazing. I mean, you know, everybody's seen it by now, and I was just late to the party. Um, but my gosh, you know, often you hear the, of these like genre mashup things nowadays, where they, you know, put two kind of disparate elements together, and it's supposed to be witty or whatever, and it's just a slog usually. Um, but the mixing kung fu with soccer is is just the greatest idea in the world, and it is such a ridiculously fun goofy over the top time that you just have a smile on your face throughout the, the movie and uh i really really enjoyed it and i i now i need to get onto the other stuff um stephen chow stuff that i haven't seen um like you know i still haven't seen kung fu hustle i haven't seen his oh, most wow. recent i know i know I, I watched uh god of cookery which is really great too um but yeah i just been behind the times so Shaolin yeah. Soccer, number five, totally rules. What about there's, you, Sean? There's, there's so much great Stephen Chow. Kung, Kung Fu Hustle, you, you got to see. You'll, you'll, you'll really like it. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Uh, my, my number five is, uh, is the category uh, films that I've watched because of the podcasts that we do. Uh, oh, see, I, I didn't allow myself to include movies like that. Yeah, uh, and uh, <laughs> the uh, the representative film from from this category is there've been a ton that we watched on on the, for the George Sanders show, uh, like uh, like Rock and Roll High School, like Awara, Ronaldo and Clara, you know. But the the one I, I'm going to pick is uh, Kiki's Delivery Service, which I watched for the show, uh, the episode of They Shot Pictures we did where we talked about Ghibli uh, earlier this year, and. I don't know if we've talked about Kiki's Delivery Service on this show yet, but it is really amazing. It's incredible. It's such a great movie. Uh, I actually uh, watched it with, uh, we, we checked out from the library, uh, my daughter and I, uh, a couple weeks ago. And, and she watched the first 20 minutes of it and, and was really digging it, and then she wanted to eat lunch. Uh, and then we didn't we didn't come back to it for for several days, but but we we did and and we finished it and we got through to the end. And uh, as I'm like sitting there like reading Twitter on my phone while she's watching the English dub of of this movie, uh, I, I started getting sucked into the ending, and I I got a little uh, I got a little teary eyed. Boom! 
<laughs> That's how good the movie is. It's it, it is phenomenal. I mean, um, yeah, I don't want to rehash every you know. We if you want to hear us talk about uh, that movie in particular, you can listen to the three hour uh, they shot pictures episode we did. Um, that in, that includes that, and it will include something later in this uh, top five. Um, coming up um yeah well speaking of stuff that we found on the podcast i'm just gonna as a little aside here um yeah there were so many great movies five star movies that i saw for the first time because of this show this year uh the train uh you know wavelength uh there's just so many uh pitch Dr. perfect lola yeah pitch perfect you know the, all, all of them <laughs> you know so it's it's really great, and I, I it always it's gratifying to go back and see all those great movies that I discovered because of this show. Uh, my number four is uh, another one that I was late to the party. These are all going to be Mike's late to the party picks. Mm -hmm. um, uh, I finally got around to John Ford's My Darling Clementine, mm -hmm. which uh, I just ate up hook, line, and sinker. I just um, from Henry Fonda's performance. Um, I mean, all of Walter Brennan playing a villain. Holy cow. Totally awesome. Um, the look of the thing. It's John Ford. It, it's, it can't be beat. And uh, I just and I actually saw it before the, uh, that recent Criterion came out. So now the Criterion's out, and I'm like, oh, man, I really want to watch that again because it's totally awesome. Um, but, yeah, it's the Wyatt Earp story, and it's John Ford, and it's, just to it's better than Tombstone. <laughs> That's not saying much. No, I I really hate Tombstone. I know a lot of people have some sort of affinity for it, but I I watched that during Western Month, and I was like, this movie's intolerable. But anyway, yeah, it's it's got some good elements in it. Like it's Val, Val, Val Kilmer's really good in it, but there, yeah, there are some. It, it's just clear that uh, the movie got away from them. Yeah. I mean, which I've read about. I mean, I know that that actually is what happened. But um, watching it, it's it's like a Frankenstein's monster kind of thing. So anyway, yeah, my darling Clementine though is 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 pretty great. Although I I you know was kind of mixed on it the, the, the last time I saw it. I was I was kind of mixed. But the time before that, I thought it might be like the best western ever. So it is really effing great. Yeah. Uh, my my number four is uh, the the category is is films from directors who I've seen a lot of movies from before, but this year I watched one of their movies and really liked it. <laughs> uh, and and uh, those uh, those include uh, Frank Borzaghi's Little Man, What Now? Uh, Francis Ford Coppola's One from the Heart, uh, William Friedkin's Sorcerer, Jean Renoir's French Can-Can, uh, Fritz Lang's uh, De Nibelungen, uh, John Carpenter's They Live, and the, uh, the representative choice, which is Joseph von Sternberg's Dishonored. Uh, with Marlene Dietrich, it was the last of the uh, the Dietrich uh, Sternberg films that I've seen, and it's it's really astounding how unusual and weird and and brilliant that movie is. Uh, Dietrich plays kind of a like a reluctant uh, Matahari type figure in in World War One. She's like a a piano player, like saloon girl, who ends up being a spy for love. And every, everywhere she goes, every every room she occupies throughout the film, there's a piano. Even at the end of the film, when she's in a jail cell, she has a piano brought into her jail cell. And her her performance there, it might be her best performance in any movie. Wow. Which is is saying something, if you know how, how much I love Marlene Dietrich. It's, it's a really great one. 
she's great. Did I tell you about the film museum in Berlin? Uh, and they have not one, not two, but like three rooms are dedicated to Dietrich, <laughs> which uh, is totally awesome. And you should go when you can and uh, hang out there. Yeah, I, do, I don't know why it took me so long to see this one because I, I love all of their other collaborations. But yeah, it's this is right up there with, with Shanghai Express and, and Morocco as uh, as my favorite. And I got to check that out. Yeah, you do. Well, uh, and they're they're all better than the Blue Angel, which you really love. I do. I I I just I rewatched it earlier this year. It's a great movie. Well, they're, um, not, they're not all better. Blonde Venus is kind of iffy, but they're all well, really good. No- <laughs> Moving on. Moving on. <laughs> my number three uh, is uh, also something we talked at length on the uh, They Shot Pictures. Uh, episode about uh, Studio Ghibli and it's uh, Isa Takahata's Only Yesterday, which uh, we've talked about on this show too, so I'm not going to dive into it again, but um, holy cow, what a great movie that should be available everywhere, but it's not because stupid things. Um, But just a beautiful, moving, quiet, you know, just languid in the best possible, you know, sense of the term um, film. Uh, that just it's 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 like Tale of Princess Kaguya, which came out you know uh, here this year. Um, it, it's it's just a work of a you know master artist, and it it's just beautiful. I love it. And uh, you are actually going to run it at Scarecrow, uh, right? Isn't that your pick? Uh, it is. I, I don't have a date yet. Uh, my guess is it's probably going to be on my birthday because I can't imagine anyone else would pick April Fool's Day, but. Uh... <laughs> Well, I'm uh, shooting. Uh, I, I tell you that I'm doing uh, Lady Snowblood on Valentine's Day. That's my plan. Although oh, yeah. Valentine's Day is not set yet, Scarecrow hasn't gotten back to me. But that's that's the date I'm looking for. Yeah, I imagine there'll be more more people trying to get uh, Valentine's get, Day. Get, get, get Valentine's Day. Okay, but uh, we'll see what happens. Yeah. All right, your number three, Sean. Uh, my number three is movies by Choi Hark, <laughs> and. Uh, I, what is the synced title compared to the last one? Uh, your, your your number four was like a mouthful, but you know that's very succinct. Yeah, uh, it's uh, it gets more succinct as as we go on. There's, oh, okay. Um, uh, uh, <laughs> Did I throw you off there? You, you threw me off. Yeah. Uh, so supposedly, I was going to spend this year like going through Johnny Toe films and writing about them in chronological order. But uh, instead, I didn't do that. I just kept watching other Hong Kong movies in an attempt. You know, I I told myself to like contextualize Johnny Toe's movies, but really, I just really like watching a whole bunch of stuff from a bunch of different people. And the one that I, I got into the most is, is Choi Hark, who's made a ton of movies and, and many of them I'd seen before. Uh, but, uh, uh, quite a few of them I hadn't. And, uh, the, the three in particular I'd want to highlight are, are, are three of his less known films. There's uh, love in the time of twilight, which is the kind of time travel, uh, it's like a, a mix of like Back to the Future, Ghost, Looney Tunes, and and Cantonese Opera, and it's it's really it's really fun and very romantic and and sad and yeah, it's 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 amazing. And uh, uh, the Blade, 
which came out the same year and is a really darkly violent and brutal wuxia film, kind of a, a variation on the one-armed swordsman that's, uh, it's one of the more gruesome kung fu movies ever, and it kind of just is is a total standout from the kind of of like the the goofy Jet Li Corey Wen you know kung fu movies that were being made at the time. And then the third is is a, a Better Tomorrow Three, which he kind of took over from John Woo. Uh, Woo was supposed to be making the sequel, the third sequel in in his trilogy, uh, kind of a prequel set during Vietnam. Uh, he and and Choi disagreed over it, and Choi took it over, and Wu went off and made his own movie, which is also really great, called called Bullet in the Head. But uh, but Choi stayed and did it with uh, uh, Chiang Fat. But it's uh, yeah, all three of these movies are amazing. <laughs> That's great. Well, there's one that you didn't mention that I vow to get to before the next episode, and we'll explain why uh, later in the show. Well, that that's another thing is is uh, I didn't include on these anything that I watched for the 1984 episode. Right. Gotcha. Uh, my number two uh, is, uh, you know, everybody did their 31 Days of Horror in October. Um, I didn't. I, what? I didn't. Well, well and neither did, neither did I. I, I, uh, I don't have the stomach for that. Mm. I did uh, a week. <laughs> That's about the most I could do. But uh, I saw for the first time during that week uh, Deep Red from Dario Argento, uh, the film he made before Suspiria, um, and a film that I like a lot more than Suspiria. Um, David Hemmings plays a, a pianist who witnesses... Uh, a murder and is trying to track down the murderer um, kind of sounds like blow up and it really would be a good double feature with it. Um, this movie's got style to spare. It's absolutely stunning. The it, gorgeous cinematography. Um, but the thing I want to highlight is the soundtrack um, from Goblin, which um, is so idiosyncratic and and interesting for a movie like this it's a very propulsive kind of proggy italian loud rock music that just like ratchets everything up uh to the next level and it's just a really amazing melding of image and sound and i um i really loved deep red <laughs> um so have you seen that john i have not uh suspiria is actually the only argento film that i have seen you should check out Deep Red. I, 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 I like Suspiria. I like it. I just... Um, uh, th this one is... I, I don't know. I, the world of this, of Deep Red, I like more than the... Like, uh, Suspiria is more heightened, like, throughout. Like, everything is, like, kind of over the top. Um, and I like this world a little bit more. This one is a little more cool and detached and stuff. Um, and I prefer that. Suspiria is fine, but I just this one sustains its mood better, in my opinion. So, check it out. Okay. <laughs> and, oh, and after I after I watched it, uh, speaking of great music and all that stuff, uh, a package arrived at my house a week later, and um, Lindy had purchased. I don't know how she found it, where she found it. She found Goblin soundtrack on vinyl, and uh, got it for me. And it's been on my turntable ever since. So, sounds. I think Scarecrow sells 
stuff like that. I they see like some, Garden, Goblin soundtracks there all the time. So yeah, I don't think they have that one. Maybe they okay. do, but uh, yeah, I looked. Maybe, last maybe they had it and Lindy bought it. <gasps> maybe she did. <laughs> all right, my my number two pick is uh, films by Frederick Wiseman. Uh, the uh, the documentarian who is is still going strong. His National Gallery is actually held over for another week at the Northwest Film Forum. So, Mike, you still have time to go see it. I really do want to see it. Yeah. Uh, um, you know, it, if my weekend, if we weren't going to Inherent Vice tomorrow, and I, you know, my weekend was a little clearer, I would really try and make it out there. Yeah, it's it's worth it. It's worth the the three hours of your time. It's worth the the trip to to Capitol Hill. Uh, but we'll talk about that movie at the. 2014 wrap-up show that we're going to do in a couple of months uh <laughs> in a couple of years yeah uh i went on on like a, i spent like two two weeks this summer watching frederick wiseman films uh i watched uh, high school which is really short and pretty awesome it's from like 1968 i want to say uh belfast maine which is really long and okay uh and crazy horse which is just from a couple of years ago but the one that I loved the most is Ballet from 1995 about the American Ballet Theater. And if you've seen Wiseman's uh, 2009 film, uh, La Dance, uh, about the Paris Opera Ballet, it's basically the same movie as, as this earlier one, although nobody, nobody ever talks about ballet. I don't know why, because it's, it's really good. And I love... I love watching uh, performances on film. It's it's one of the things that uh, attracts me to kung fu films. It's one of the things that attracts me to musicals. And the way Wiseman approaches dance in his dance movies, uh, Crazy Horse, La Dance, and, and and ballet, is something I, I just find really fascinating. It's it's a a kind of a, a cinema verite kind of thing where he he puts the camera there and you're just watching the dancers at work. They're not addressing the camera. They're not performing specifically for the camera, but he's not. It's not just like a fly on the wall kind of thing. Like he's consciously trying to frame it and cut it together into where it's telling a narrative about the ballet company. And he has you know a, a, a fairly rigid you know dramatic structure that he follows. Yeah, especially in these performance films, but it's it's so fascinating to me just watching these dancers at work. And one of the the neat little tricks that he do, that he'll do in his films because they won't have interviews, they won't have like talking heads, people you know talking to Wiseman or talking to the camera like you get in a normal documentary. Uh, but what he will do is film somebody getting interviewed by somebody else. So you get that kind of informative, you know, expositional aspect of the documentary film without Wiseman having to do it himself. And the the, the long interview segment in, in ballet is with Agnes DeMille, who was really old at the time that she was doing this. She uh, very famous choreographer who did uh, the original version of Oklahoma on Broadway. Uh, and she's just like this little old lady talking about what she, you know, what she loves about about choreography and about dance and about ballet and it's just it's fascinating and you see you know the the various choreographers and the dancers build up these performances throughout like two hours and then you see like the the final performances of most of them and it's it's terrific i i really love frederick wiseman once again that's a you know his filmography is one that I really have been meaning to dive into for a long time. And knowing that, you know, Scarecrow's got them all. 
Yeah. I know I will dive into them soon. I just, you know. Yeah, yeah. His, his institutional films tend to be like the more, the more popular ones, like, like high school, like uh, Titicut Follies, which is about a, like a mental institution, uh, or welfare. Uh, the stuff like that, I'm sure it's, it's, it's good and interesting, but it's the performance ones that I really like the ones, the ones about right. art and, and national gallery fits into that. And, and so does that Berkeley actually his, his film from last year. Um, I, I don't know why it's probably because I'm a terrible person that I like those movies and I'm not really interested in watching welfare, but what are you going <laughs> to do? That's clearly, that's clearly what it is. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, well, my number one pick is, I think I talked about it briefly on the show, but, um, I have seen a number of Ernst Lubitsch films before. Um, and I mentioned, uh, yeah, we did talk about this, uh, but I had not seen Trouble in Paradise. Um, and until I saw it a few months ago and it is the most breezy, beautiful, funny, just charming movie ever made. It really is. I mean, it's just... It's the bee's knees, you know, and I don't even know what that means, but it's, I just love it. It's, it's con artists, it's thieves being super charming and, uh, it's just beautiful. I just love it. It's great. Yeah. It's, it's, <laughs> it's one of, it's one of the most perfect movies. It really is. It really is. Like, you know, I, I have five star movies that I know, you know, heart of heart, you know, it's not perfect you know it's not you know but for you know it's got sentimental reasons or whatever or it speaks to me on certain levels or whatever um but trouble in paradise is kind of a unanimous five-star movie like mm -hmm. i can't imagine anybody watching that and being like ho-hum about it you know let alone hating it like i just i can't fathom that i can because the world is filled with terrible people but <laughs> well like i can see i can clearly like if i wanted to i could make arguments against the other ones I've mentioned, you know, I could, I can say certain, you know, I could be like, well, you know, I mean, I love them to death, but I could see someone having a problem with it. I really can't see it with trouble in paradise. I can't mount an argument against it, but, and I don't want you to start. I don't want you to try. No, I, I won't. I, I love that movie. It's, <laughs> it's my favorite film in 1932. It's, it's amazing. It's, yeah, it's perfect. It's, it's perfect. It's per it's, it's perfect. Yeah. What's your number one, Sean? Uh, my number one is uh, the films of Lee Han Shang. <laughs> and uh, I, I put him as my number one because it's the, the most obscure. Uh, <laughs> he's the, the director who I feel like I actually like, went out and discovered. Like I knew that, that I liked Troy Hark. I knew that I liked Frederick Wiseman before this year. I knew you know, a, a lot of these other movies. I knew what I was getting into. Uh, but I had no experience with, with Lee or the kind of movie that he made. Uh, I wish I could say that it was like, you know, my own idea to go and start watching them. But I was like, uh, uh, our friend, uh, uh, Matt Lynch from, from Scarecrow, uh, had started watching them and, uh, kind of reminded me that these, that Scarecrow had these movies. They have like a, you know, two dozen of his films. And as Matt was watching them, I was like, you know, I should watch those too. And I ended up watching, I think four of his films this year. Uh, the Enchanting Shadow, uh, which is a, uh, which is based on the same story as the Chinese ghost story, uh, which starred uh, Leslie Chung that, that Choi Hark made in 1987. Uh, the, uh, the Dream of the Red Chamber from 1977, which is a very early film with uh, Bridget Lin and Sylvia Chang. 
Beyond the Great Wall, which is uh, another uh, adaptation from literature, it's, it's really good. And my favorite is is probably his most famous film uh, from 1963. It's called The Love Etern, which is an adaptation of the Butterfly Lovers legend, which uh, Choi Hark also made uh, the same year that he did The Blade and Love in the Time of Twilight. Uh, his version is called The Lovers. But... Uh, these movies are all are all musicals, and they're a particular kind of musical that I'm not really sure the derivation. I think it comes from from stage from from Chinese opera. It's called a Huang Mei musical, and uh, uh, typically uh, there will be kind of gender reversals in in the performances. Like in in Dream of the Red Chamber, I think Bridget Lin is playing a guy, and Sylvia Chang is playing a woman, and in The Love Eterne. Uh, uh, it's also two women playing the the main lovers, even though one of them is supposed to be a guy. But then there's the the twist that the story is uh, that the main woman protagonist wants to go to school, so she pretends to be a guy to go to the school where she falls in love with a guy who's played by a woman. Mm. Got it. <laughs> I do actually, and that sounds really awesome. Yeah, and then there's there's lots of singing, and the music is is really interesting like i i i don't know chinese at all i don't i don't speak the language i'm not familiar hardly at all with with chinese music but you know it's it it has a different kind of tonality than western music and it it can sound like really jarring uh the first time you listen to it well, it's no Lana Del Rey, Sean. It's no Lana Del Rey, <laughs> but you know, once once you get into it, it's it's really it's really neat, and and the 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 lines of of the songs in the musical are these like long melodic passages with like these little kind of percussive beats breaking them up, and it's they all kind of sound the same, but they all kind of sound awesome. And I don't really. I wish I I had better musical language in which to describe them. <laughs> no, you know anybody that tries to add different you know terminology than awesome, they, they're making it up as they go. Yeah, and you know the the these aren't musicals like Bollywood musicals. There aren't production numbers. There aren't like big dance sequences. They're basically just like people singing to each other about about their feelings, and they're all set on these gorgeous. Uh, stages. Uh, all these movies were made for for Shaw Brothers, and Shaw Brothers before they started doing kung fu films. This was the genre they specialized in: these kind of lavish historical musical melodrama productions, mostly with with uh, 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 female heroes. And and Lee was was their top director. And uh, working under him in in the mid '60s was King Hu who we talked about way, way did. back on the show when, uh, when he talked about A Touch of Zen. And, and King Hu learned from Li Hanshang. And so, yeah, that's, that's my number one, The Love Eterne and, and the films of Li Hanshang. Good job, Sean. <laughs> and Good. I want to I watch more of them. Matt, Matt has watched more of these movies than I have, apparently, in the 70s. Matt has he... watched more movies than yeah. anybody well, in that's the history. It's insane. Apparently in the 70s, he basically, like, the musical genre was dead, so he, he was basically just, like, directing porn. Well, and... I'm gonna, I know where I'm going to start. <laughs> so maybe, you know, depending on your interest, you just skip the musicals and go straight to the porn. That's right. Key to my heart. Yeah. Uh, well, that's our top five. Uh, we'd love to hear 
you know, if we have any listeners, we'd love to hear what what you thought your top five, you know, discoveries were. And apparently this is a thing that people do. So you've already created your list anyway. So uh, you can email it to us at the George Sanders show at gmail.com or you can tweet it. And if you tweet it, do me the favor and do uh, at the end of it. Right. Hashtag hashtag. <laughs> I want to make hashtag hashtag a trending thing. Is that trending? I want it to trend. Does that make sense? You you are, yeah. You write hashtag. You you do a hashtag and then you write hashtag. You you're you're you are the king of anti-social media. Does that make sense? No. <laughs> you do the hashtag. Yeah. And then you, no. What if you did hashtag and then you wrote out the words pound sign? Anyway, we've got more music to listen to, right? Yeah, Sean? this is this is the album that uh, this was the third album I listened to from from 2014, and it's uh, uh, Neil Young's uh, was it the album called Letters from Home? A letter home, I think it's called. A yeah. letter home, uh, whatever it's called. Uh, <laughs> uh, it's uh, he went into a studio and set out to make a record that sounded like old and vinyl. And it actually sounds kind of old and vinyl, and, and well, I, I dig that sound. And it's all covers of, of old songs. So let me elaborate. Okay. Uh, so Jack White has a, uh, a record studio, you know, he has a uh, production studio, record store, kind of all-in-one third-man records place in Nashville, Tennessee. Uh, they do concerts there, all kinds of stuff. Anyway, there's a there's a booth, like a little booth about the size of the closet that I'm recording this uh, show in, uh, where you can pay, I think it's like 15 bucks or something, and you can record directly to vinyl um, a song. And so Neil Young recorded in this tiny little shoebox kind of thing, and he recorded this album covers. And uh, I think there's there's video of it on online, and it's super cool looking, and nobody could pull it off like Neil. So, uh, yeah, what's the song we're going to listen to, Sean? Uh, Since I Met You, Baby. All right. Since I met you, baby, my whole life has changed. Since I met you, babe, I'm a happy man. Since I 
As you know, if you've ever listened to this show, I watch a lot of movies from Hong Kong. Uh, I've been doing that for each of the last two years. And, you know, the, the, the theory, like I said, is that I've been like trying to contextualize Johnny Toe's film because I'm doing like this big uh, uh, chronological Johnny Toe project. And, and part of that is watching his early films, which are... Uh, a lot of them are, are these kind of silly slapstick comedies. So I spent a lot of time trying to watch Hong Kong comedies over the last two years. Uh, one of the most popular of those uh, came out in 2002, and it's called The Golden Chicken, which uh, the, the title derives from uh, Cantonese slang for prostitute, which is chicken. And from the main character's name, which uh, supposedly means gold, although it's unclear what exactly the name is, because in the third film, she's Cam, but in the first two films, it's Cum. <laughs> it certainly is. <laughs> uh, so I don't know if there's like a double entendre there with the English you know, pronunciation of her name, or if it's just a coincidence or what. But anyway, uh, the movies are about a prostitute. Uh, played by Sandra Ng. Uh, and they basically, the, the first film basically tells her life story from the time that she started uh, in a, uh, in a uh, fishball parlor as a teenager up until the present in 2002. Uh, the, the film begins, she's at an ATM and she gets mugged by, by Eric Chang. Uh, and then the two of them get locked in the ATM vestibule, and in order to kill the time, she tells him a bunch of stories about her life. And that, that's the format of the film. It's these episodic stories in roughly chronological order from her life, and it parallels the history of Hong Kong from, from the late 70s up until 2002. That's so, right. <laughs> so yeah, the uh, the the you know that and the weird thing about it is is it's this mix of just kind of grotesque slapstick comedy with real you know poignant you know emotional depth and you know the political history of of the colony over twenty years. So it's it's a film unlike anything I've ever seen before. And, and I, I really loved it. I liked the sequel a lot, too. I watched uh, the third one, Golden Chickens, with three S's, uh, came out uh, this year. Uh, the first time in, in 11 years that Sandra Ingham made a Golden Chicken movie, and it's not as good as the first two. What, it's what, not directed by um, Samson Chu, right? It's, 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 it's not. The, Samson Chu directed the first two, but it's, it's directed by the co-writer of the first two, Matt Chow. Right. So is a different director, but same writer. Okay. But it's a it's a different it's a different approach. It's it's different in tone. It's more it's more vulgar, and it's not as kind of expansive in in its historical perspective. Uh, but it does have some really cool stuff in it. So 
yeah, it's definitely definitely worth checking out the sequels if you like this one. And did you like this one? I did. I, I enjoyed it a lot. Um, I really had no idea what I was getting myself into. Um, yeah, I, I <laughs> you know, standing in line with the box cover uh, of this at Scarecrow, I was like, what's Sean got going on here? Uh, the box cover is uh, a blow-up doll uh, looking quite uh, excited. Uh, so I'm standing there with that and coffee, by the way, which uh, also has quite a lurid cover. And I'm like, oh, great. Here we go. Um, but this is a really sweet movie. Um her so just like coffee uh the the movie succeeds because of the main performance um this this uh this performance is just i mean it carries the show and uh she's such a lovable character that's so well developed and and she's goofy and ridiculous you know she she uh mimics jackie chan's drunken master moves really really well um and so she's totally goofy but then you're you're right yeah, er, early on in her career as a prostitute she's not as pretty as the other girls she's she's like she's got big features and, and weird hair and she's clumsy and she wears these giant glasses so she doesn't make the money that they do uh, but she earns a living by by just being fun and and being the butt of jokes and doing this drunken master impression. Yeah. Um, so she's got that element to her. But yeah, then there is this and, and they don't belabor this at all, which is which is to the movie's strength is, you know, she does have these kind of asper not aspirations, but she has these kind of dreams um, and uh, she, you know, there there's some poignant you know there's some heartbreak underneath it all but it never becomes cloying it's never like really on the surface she has a baby at one point and she chooses to you know let it go you know uh give it to uh a man who will raise it you know in america and uh she doesn't you know want to have contact with the kid but then obviously she has second thoughts about that um but they don't make it this kind of you know melodramatic thing it's it's you know it's a it's a stumbling block and she you know it's part of her life, um, and so those things are I really, really appreciated too. And she's such a well-rounded, really beautifully drawn uh, character, and it's and it's because of that performance. Um, yeah, like like we were like we were saying with, with with coffee. There's the the low genre elements make the the melodrama much more effective than it would be if it was just a straight melodrama. And it's it's the way it, it kind of sneaks up on you. Like like the first you know twenty minutes of the movie are just are just pure silliness. Yeah, it's uh, pretty ridiculous. Yeah, and and it's it's a lot of fun. It, it's funny, and then it, you know you get this this storyline where she where she's pregnant and has to give up her baby, and and you know she has this this relationship with this guy who seems like a nice guy, and she goes and sees his his doctor who is also his friend and looks like the Chinese Bob Balaban. Uh, <laughs> I thought he looked like Lindy's brother, which is really weird, but like, it was really distracting. Like um, he's very adorable, you know, his little bow ties and stuff. Uh, yeah, but yeah, I can see the Bob Balabanness of him. Yeah, it's like the the sweetness of it uh, hits you hit you harder because you're not expecting it. And this is this is one of the things I love about Hong Kong movies. It's this it's this mix of tones that you never really know where a film is going to go. And and I just I find that so 
you know, exciting in a movie. Just yeah, and well, sometimes that can be to a movie's detriment. Like it, it can, it can feel um, if it's not organic, it can kind of slow things down or, or fuck things up. But in movies like this, um, it all just kind of flows. You know, it's kind, of, it's it feels effortless. You know, this kind of these kind of uh, shifts in tone and and uh, style and stuff, which is great. Yeah, and it, it's I think I think it's interesting the way the the film kind of deals with with the fact that that she's a prostitute and we are like kind of having fun with the goofy prostitute and it it happens early in the film she's she's telling the story to, to Eric Chang and if you if you know Hong Kong films at all you know you know him he's a a recurring kind of comic figure he's he's short and 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 fat he's in the uh he's in a lot of the Samuel Hung movies in in the mid 80s did you did you know Eric Chang did you recognize he him? looks familiar, but yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, by the way, just an aside. One of the, I think the moment that I laughed out loud was the uh, the reveal of his name, uh, his right. character's name in this movie. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> which comes at the very very end of this thing. But my God, it was great. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Don't don't look it up on IMDb. Just watch watch the movie and and wait yeah, for it. It's 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 fun. <laughs> Uh, well, she, she starts telling him the story and, and he's not laughing at like her, her, you know, silly experience with, with a John. And he's like, you're a prostitute. I just think that's so tragic. And, and she's like, well, you know, it's my life. Right. Well, that's what I, uh, um, I love this movie's approach to sex in general. Um, it's so refreshing. Like I, you know, I can't think of. American movies that deal with sex in any capacity, really. Like, I know there are a couple movies that came out this year I didn't see either of them, but like, there's, you know, that sex tape movie, which is supposed to be just the worst thing ever or whatever. But, you know, American films, you know, there's this weird kind of Western complex when it comes to sex, but this movie kind of just embraces all of it. You know, it yeah. embraces the silliness of it. It, it. it, you know, it doesn't look down on people's perversions, um, but it doesn't like also like, decide to highlight them either you know it's just like these are you know this is what's happening i'm a prostitute these are the stories that happen with me and it's you know it's just another kind of it's another kind of job and it's another you know um but then she also has these kind of emotional moments where she gets attached and she has meaningful sex with somebody and Mm -hmm. um and and it can be um you know emotional and um, beautiful and all these other things, and so it, you know you you don't see that in in American made films uh, at least anymore. And um, it's so great to just see a movie that's based on something like you could never make a movie like this in the states. You know, like what you get in the states is like Pretty Woman. You know right. what I mean? Um, well, yeah, I think I think that points to to two really interesting things about this. Like the the first is is the the kind of social problem approach. To, to prostitution, oh, that's so tragic, uh, tends to, it, it abstracts the individual into a social problem. Uh, and it doesn't, it doesn't allow for, for the character to have, you know, her own agency. Like, this is, this is what she does. You know, this is what she wants to do. She could do other things if she wanted, but she enjoys being a prostitute. Uh, Maybe you know there may there are social issues that go along with that, but maybe it's uh 
but it's not really relevant to our story about her. Does that make right. sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and and the second is uh, uh, the the fact that it views prostitution as just another way of making a living, as as a transactional uh, kind of capitalist enterprise, is is how the film analogizes Hong Kong. Where Hong Kong, uh, you know, in in the eighties and nineties, is this kind of uh, a perfect storm of laissez-faire capitalism. It's it's not really Britain. It's not really China. There is basically no economic regulations. There's you could basically do whatever you want. And this this kind of uh, you know everyone for themselves. Everyone's out to make money is like the guiding principle of Hong Kong in the early eighties. And then you have these series of, of crises that lead to it all falling apart as we get closer and closer to 2002. And, and you see those in the film. There's, you know, the, the initial, uh, uh, the, the kind of first crack in her storyline is when she becomes pregnant. And that occurs in the timeline right around the time that, that China and the UK agree that Hong Kong is going to go back to China in 1997. There had been some hope that they might extend the lease and Hong Kong would continue to be a colony, but that kind of collapses in the mid-80s. And then you have the, the stock market crash of 1987. You have the handover in 1997. You have another stock market crash right after the handover, and then yet another one in the early 2000s. So you just all of these, these political and economic crises that just make things worse and worse and worse for you know people trying to make a living and you see it in her you know her various job changes she's a prostitute the whole time but her situation develops as it goes along right she starts in this like classy well classy you know as classy as you're gonna get in the 70s with you know gold satin and you know uh, yeah, funk the, bands uh, playing <laughs> club 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 the boss right uh and then she moves on when she kind of ages out of you know that kind of job and becomes a masseuse um who, you know, does more than, you know, you'd expect. Uh, and then, and yeah, and then she ends up working for herself in the end, which is actually, well, okay. Can we talk about Andy Lau now? I think, I think, I don't think you can talk about this movie without talking about Andy Lau. <laughs> what a great use of star power. You know, oftentimes bringing a movie star into something um, in a winking kind of role or or just a cameo kind of thing takes you out of a movie you know it's 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 kind of a knowing kind of winking thing that that is doesn't add up to much but my god so Andy Lau appears in two scenes in this movie very very early on she's telling these stories um, and she, and she says you won't believe who I met once at the massage parlor or whatever and it's him it's andy lau and he's getting a you know a back massage or whatever and he, he, he falls just, asleep he just wants to take a nap he just wants to take a nap <laughs> and so he does and then she decides to you know look at his private parts while he's sleeping mm-hmm. um and then he disappears which which is genius by the way because i i didn't know he, he was going to come back mm-hmm. um and and then near the very end She's trying to go into business for herself and she's just not doing so hot. And she's watching, um, which I read later was uh, it's an actual, actual thing, yeah. an actual video, like a training video that Andy Lau got paid to star in or whatever, where it's like some kind of corporate, you know, spiel where it's he's like, like a customer service. 
yeah, instruction Maximize. video. <laughs> Which, by the way, reminded me. Do you remember the one when we worked at the Metro? Who of was course. The star, who was the star of that one? The guy from uh, was a blind date. Lodge. Yeah. <laughs> I wish we had Andy Lau instead. But yeah. um, anyway, so then she's watching this video and kind of. Um, trying to translate the tips that he's giving to her life as a, you know, do-it-yourself prostitute. And uh, and then he comes out of the TV and teaches her how to really sell a fake orgasm. And uh, it is... It's so, it's so perfect. It, that scene is just phenomenal. And, and, he, and he's and such it, a sport about it. What? And it doesn't end there. It turns... It, like, her her ability to properly fake an orgasm turns into like this grand patriotic uh, statement about Hong Kong persevering in the 21st century and like unity and everyone, if they, you know, if you really put your heart into it, that we can accomplish anything. And it's so uplifting. (laughs) No, it's that's what, and that's, yeah, exactly. That scene is just so pivotal to everything. And it's, it's so, in, you know, it's funny to talk about it in terms of, yay, this woman's going to be able to, you know, <laughs> sell her body some more. Uh, but it really is kind of this uh, heartwarming um, moment. And, and you know, and, and it plays it really playfully, um, you know, where where Andy Lau, you know, dis- turns into this very obese uh, kind of uh, goofy looking guy. And she has to try and fake it with him and then with these, you know, other guys and stuff. Um, but it's, it's just perfectly, perfectly played. Um, and yeah, I, I love the fact that Andy Lau is in this movie. <laughs> and Andy Lau is so undervalued in, in the West compared to, you know, his, his output and his, his skill as an actor and his like status well, as a star. Exactly. And Andy Lau, Andy Lau has been a star for over 30 years now. He's had a longer career as a movie star than Tom Cruise and you, you never hear about him in the West but if you, you actually go through his filmography it is as good as anyone in the history of film and well, he is still the coolest guy and if you didn't know Andy Lau going into this movie, let's say this was the first Hong Kong movie you ever saw or something. Um, Which would be weird. It would be very, very, very weird. I, you know, I might try that on somebody. I need to find someone that's, you know, <laughs> a virgin, as it were, and then give them golden chicken. Um, but, you know, the movie kind of gives you a little bit of rope with it and, and, and you know, because she's such a huge fan of him or whatever. So even if you didn't know who he was, like, they they sell you on, this guy's a movie star. And so if you didn't know he was, at least you know that this guy is playing a movie star. But Andy Lau, he's he's, he's a great actor and, and all those things. Uh, gorgeous man, I'll tell you that. Um, but he has that kind of, you know, incandescent star power just like emanating off of him. Like mm-hmm. you, if you didn't know Andy Lau before this movie, you would know Andy Lau by the end of this movie. Cause he's so magnetic, you know, he's so good to watch. He's so, he's so, he's a movie star. He's a freaking movie star playing a movie star. Um, and he's so good at it. Yeah. Like unlike Chiang Fat, who, who we also see in this film and in, uh, in his soap opera days, right. which is awesome. He's got some huge hair. He really uh, does. Uh, he never he never went to the U.S. to try and make films, and unlike uh, Tony Long and Maggie Chung, who we also see in their TV days, uh, uh, he does he never 
his his work with with Wong Kar Wai was before Wong Kar Wai's movies were getting played in the right. U.S. Right. So uh, he did he did the first two of Wong's films, and he hasn't worked with him since. So he 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 hasn't had that kind of American hit that other Hong Kong actors have, which I, I think is what has led to his lower profile, which is which is not deserved because he is as good, if not better, than those guys as as a movie star and as an actor. He's great. He's really I, lo- great. I love Andy Lau. <laughs> <laughs> yes, uh, I want to talk about the um, the way this movie looks. Uh, it is a colorful. I don't know what it is about prostitutes in movies and color, but uh, you know we were talking about Fassbender's Lola, which is a uh, very colorful movie um, in and of itself. Uh, but the colors on display in this movie, um, you know, each scene is has a really distinct kind of color palette to it. You know, very bright pinks and greens and um she wears this yellow outfit at one point that's just you know popping off the, the screen the, like the mirrored brassy gold of the the club earlier right. in the film or the 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 deep red of the uh the fishball club where she's a teenager uh that's that's only lit by uh by like a giant flame from a, a zippo that yeah, that's a great shot. Um, uh, or the uh, the massage parlor that's just all red. Yeah, orange. Yeah, yeah, orange. Like, yeah, uh, orange robes and stuff. Yeah, it's really really cool to look at. Um, and then you said the word mirror. Uh, there are a lot of really interesting. Like they're they're kind of flashy, mm-hmm. but they're not. I don't know. They're, they're flashy without being obnoxious. Where a lot of shots will be taken where you'll. Like th- from a mirror, you'll see like a mirror. You know, the camera's shooting from the mirror, and the characters, you know, on the other side of the camera or whatever. Um, that happens a few times, and and there are some interesting um, angles taking from from the movie. And what I really like is, um, I think once the power goes out in the uh, the ATM booth that they're in, um, I'm pretty sure the camera doesn't go back into the ATM. It films them from outside the window the whole time. Yeah, I think so. Um, which is pretty awesome too. Yeah, it's <laughs> uh, it it, it kind of speaks to the high level of of craft in the Hong Kong industry, and and this this movie is coming out at a very low point in the Hong Kong film industry. A lot of talent had had left the colony before the handover. Uh, with the the economic crises, movie attendance was really down. There wasn't a lot going on. And and 2002 is kind of like a big comeback year. You have like you have Golden Chicken. You have you know some more great uh, uh, Johnny Toe films, uh, who had been cranking them out since the handover. That's when when he started uh, uh, Milky Way Image. Uh, and you also have Infernal Affairs coming out right around this time, which was a big international hit. And right. then and then from then on, uh, it's just gotten better and better in Hong Kong is you get like a, a whole new generation of, of talent coming in and still maintaining this high level of, of, uh, of technical ability from, from just like the basic crew people like Hong Kong films, like on, on average, I would say look better, just generically look better than any film industry in the world, including Hollywood. I agree. I would agree. I mean, uh, yeah, I'm trying to think of a Hollywood movie, I mean, this is, you know, it, it, this is 10 years old now, you know, 12 mm-hmm. years old now, you know, so I, I you know, but, um, it's just pop, like I said, it pops off the screen and it's, um, 
Yeah, like it, even you know the even like a, a low budget film, and and part of it is just that that Hong Kong itself is such a a photogenic place. Like I, I don't know if you saw any of the uh, any of the images of the protests that that have been going on all fall in oh, in, oh, yeah. in Hong Kong, but it's you know even just like people standing there with like a digital camera taking a picture of a crowd it just looks gorgeous and and brightly lit and and it's you know the the way like the buildings and the streets form and like the crowds and the umbrellas and the colors and it's just a beautiful city and it's you know just on like the very basic level of that is a cool looking shot <laughs> it's like impossible not to get that out of hong kong i think yeah but like in this movie i mean this movie is like 95% interiors yeah. you know and and uh so it can't even fall back on the natural well, i mean not natural but the the wonders of of the architecture of a city or something sure. like that so but um, but absolutely your point stands i mean it it is a really um interestingly i mean you you know I, you know, no one shot Hong Kong better than Wong Kar Wai, in my, you know, in my opinion. And, and some of those images and stuff like Fallen Angels or something like that, um, I mean, they just they just sit in my head. You know what I mean? Like, they're just, like, living in my head, these little shots of, like, these neon signs and stuff like that. Um, it's just su- such a, an evocative place. So, um, but yeah, anyway. Yeah, it is. And uh uh, I you you didn't have time to watch any of the sequels. I I would definitely recommend uh, the second one to you. Yeah. Which, uh, which so how does that work? Does, so does she? I mean, without really diving too deep into it, does, does it have a similar structure to this? Does does it? It, it does. It's, it's similarly episodic. Uh, the the framing story is is set in twenty forty six. Oh, interesting. And the movie was released while Wong Kar Wai was in the middle of editing that film. Uh-huh. Uh, and and she's she's still there, still still looking great because plastic surgery has has advanced. Uh, uh-huh. And she she meets a guy who uh, is like Eric Chang. He is very despondent, so she decides to tell him about the worst year in the history of Hong Kong, which was two thousand three, which was the year that the film came out. And uh, and so we hear uh, we have like uh, it opens with like some kind of silly. Uh, uh, sequences with uh, with her clients. Uh, Anthony Wong is in there. There's another guy who uh, who keeps forgetting his wife. Uh, again, riffing on on 2046. Uh, and then there's a, a a long middle section about the the SARS outbreak. Um, for a while, she's she's quit being a prostitute and has opened a, a diner. And one of her regulars is uh, is Leon Lai playing a doctor who's fighting SARS. And she has like this this very sweet relationship with him that's not romantic at all, but 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 very nice. And then the 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 last half of the film is uh, the story of her lifelong romance with her cousin, who uh, is not in the first film at all. But the the way that the film integrates him is kind of going back to all of the 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 locations and sequences from the first film and like weaving him into the margins of the storyline from the first film. Oh, interesting. Yeah, which is which is really neat, That's and cool. in 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 the kind of way that uh, that the first film kind of encapsulates twenty years of Hong Kong history, uh, the the second film incorporates uh, a lot of Hong Kong cinema from from those times, mm. and it ends it ends with this amazing shot. I, I, there's another Andy Lau cameo uh, in the future. He's apparently the chief executive of Hong Kong, which is like the uh, like the president or the mayor 
it's it's complicated. It's actually what a lot of the protests are about right now. But uh, anyway, Andy Lau has become a, a political leader. And uh, he comes back to give her some words of advice at the end, and and it closes with like uh, with with him telling her to 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 close her eyes. She's like depressed, and uh, so he says, "Close your eyes. When you open it, you'll see the Hong Kong that you remember, or the the Hong Kong that was like you know your favorite Hong Kong." And she opens it up, and it's this cityscape that I swear to God is from a better tomorrow, <laughs> or the killer, or something like it. It's the Hong Kong of the late '80s, and you see these lights, the blues, the reds, and yellows, and these buildings and the harbor, and it's it's just gorgeous, and it's so it's so neat. <laughs> I really cool. like it. <laughs> well cool well good good choice uh better than crank oh, uh, good. <laughs> from last year i i, I crank is awesome though <laughs> um we're gonna take uh one more break here and you know you were talking about your struggles with music and you know i think it's a sign of getting older or you know interest changing or or, or whatever but um you know getting ready for this show uh, I was like, okay, I've got to go back through and find the, the 2014 music I've, I've gotten. And, you know, I've got a, I got a few things. Um, but then I, I asked myself, well, what were the albums that I bought this year? Because I get a lot of stuff from the library. You know, I find stuff, you know, different ways and stuff. But I was like, what did I actually go out and buy? And uh, we're listening to the three albums that I actually went to a music store and purchased. Oh, actually, one I bought uh, through mail order. But um, And I realized... <laughs> Do you do you know what the uh, the the through line is for these three uh, records, Sean? Uh, is it the Melvins? <laughs> it's the Melvins, and I did not plan this at all. This is not like a a, a, a twelve month long joke leading up to the <laughs> the end of George Sanders show. But uh, yeah, I got the Hugh Time uh, percussion record. I got the King Buzzo uh, solo album, and I got the new Melvins record uh, called Hold It In. And so here's a song from that. <laughs> called uh, You Can Make Me Wait. Okay, I'd like to thank uh, the Melvins and any permutation that they choose to uh, exist in. Uh, this actually, th- this record, uh, Hold It In, is a collaboration between uh, Buzz and Dale from the Melvins and two of the guys from the Butthole Surfers, uh, Paul Leary and uh, uh, what the hell's the other guy named? Jeff Pincus. Uh, oh, yeah, of course. Right. So, and actually, that song was not written by. <laughs> Buzz, which is kind of weird, but anyway, I'll I'll shut up now. Uh, if you are in San Francisco, I think you know when we do these rep things. Um, I I think most often I mention the Castro Theater in San Francisco because uh, I'm lazy, basically. <laughs> I always forget to do the rep thing until like a minute before we record. But they tend to do awesome stuff there, and it's a really cool theater. So I don't give a damn. But uh, they are leading up to uh, Christmas, which is just around the corner. Uh, They're doing a Sunday, uh, December 21st, double feature of Die Hard and Scrooged, uh, which uh, I just recently rewatched Scrooged uh, last weekend, and I hadn't seen it since I was a kid. And uh, that movie holds up, man. Scrooged is pretty badass. 
<laughs> Those are both movies I saw in the theater when they were originally out. Because <laughs> I'm really old. Well, 1988, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's a great double feature leading up to the holiday. Um, I, you know, you, it's hard to beat Carol Kane beating up uh, Bill Murray with a toaster. So, you know, go check it out if you're in San Francisco or in those areas. Yeah, and uh, we, we didn't have a chance because we didn't do any news this week. We didn't have a chance to talk about the, the fact that Landmark is closing the, the varsity and the Harvard exit, which is is really sad. We've talked about a lot of, of theater closings on the show. Um, but I, I wanted to be more positive and pick a, a theater in Seattle that is that is doing it right. And that is the Grand Illusion. And we've talked about them several times before. And this time of year for like the the... 60th year in a row they're playing it's a wonderful life and you should go see it there because they are a great theater and it's a great movie yeah grand illusion rules uh we're actually going to tie we can we can set this up um the first show of the new year is going to be uh jimmy stewart Mm -hmm. day on the on the george sanders show um because after it's a wonderful life they're showing um what are they showing uh philadelphia story philadelphia story and shop around the corner uh, right, both um, both uh, amazing films from 1940 that star Jimmy Stewart. Yeah, we're going to talk about some more obscure stuff. Uh, yeah, on that show, but we'll talk about that later. Uh, the next episode coming in two weeks' time uh, is our going to be our grand year-end spectacular where we talk about all things 1984. Uh, we're going to be listening to Prince. We're going to be uh, having in-depth discussions about two films, uh, Love Streams and Streets of Fire. So, you know, get those while you can. Uh, and then we're going to be running down our, you know, top five films of 1984, um, giving out awards for best director, actor, actress, screenplay, all that good stuff, uh, just like we did last year with 1933. Um, so I've been really working hard to try to get to a lot of 83 movies. I mean, 84 movies. <laughs> I've been doing the wrong year. Um, 84 movies um, in the last couple of weeks. And I'm really just going to dive in uh, in the next two weeks here. Um, I've, I'm at uh, 37 films right now for 1984. And I hope to add another, you know, I don't know, six or 10 uh, before we get to that show. So fingers crossed. Yeah, I have uh, 50 some right now. But there's there's still quite a few I want to see, so I'm going to try and fit those in. I'm also trying to watch a bunch of 2014 movies. Uh, but as I understand it, Prince is very litigious, so we may not be listening to to him. No, this is how we get. You know, we're going to get our name in the news, Sean. We're going to oh, be right. we're going to be trending. Uh, we're going to get we're going to sued by Prince. It's going to be awesome. Well, someone else who is very litigious is uh, uh, the uh, the final artist of the day, and that is, of course. Taylor Swift. That's right. Uh, and uh, this is this is my favorite new song of 2014. But that's not saying much because I because <laughs> you've heard like 12. Yeah, because I've heard like 12. Um, but but I I really love this one. This is out of the woods.
don't know. Do you have an opinion on Lana, Lana Del Rey? I'm not a fan. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've only heard a couple of songs, and they were on Pandora. Um, and I don't know. It's there's just there's nothing there for me. But you know, whatever. The the first I ever saw her was on Saturday Night Live, and that kind of infamous performance. Right. Deer and, in a headlights kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, and it was it was it was bad. But uh, later, I got her her first album, kind of on a whim, and and I dug it. Some yeah. good stuff there. And sure. the sec- second one, uh, it's kind of cool. <laughs> it's fine. It's, like, she's, it's got she, shades, shades of cool. Yeah, she's she's no Taylor Swift, but well, yeah, I mean, who is? But yeah, I, I like her. Kim like Kim likes her too. So it's yeah. a it's a musical choice we can agree on. That's important. Yeah. In a relationship. <laughs> yeah, it, I've noticed that Lindy. Uh, I, either she like tolerated the stuff I listened to uh, a lot back in the day, and now she's like, "Fuck it, I'm ten years into this. Like, I'm just gonna tell them I don't want to listen to this right now." Mm-hmm. Um, but it seems like increasingly, uh, if I got something on, it's I got to turn it off. <laughs> yeah, Kim Kim started doing that with movies. Like, oh really? For years, she just kind of go along with whatever I I, I suggested, <laughs> right. just because she didn't want to fight about it. Uh-huh. And now she's just like putting her feet down, like, no, I don't want to watch that. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. you know, that's all right. I think I think the breaking point was uh, two or three things I, I know about her at the uh, at the film forum. Godard will do it to you. Yep. Yep. That'll do it. Yep. <laughs> We should leave all of this in to the show, by the way. Oh yeah, it's it's essential information for the those kids out there who have not yet been in, in a long term relationship. That's right, LTR, <laughs> as they say. Yeah. Anyway, 